one of the ways you, you can use comedy to relate to people in any situation, especially something like this, is just self-awareness. And so I would open with, look, there's also, these are 19-year-old dudes with guns. I am a very tiny, big guys, you know, like army man. I'm five feet tall, middle-aged lesbian. So, you know, I go up on stage and go, well, the big faces get the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. You get me. <laughs> you know, I mean, just acknowledging, I know what I look like. I know what you're thinking. It relaxes them. They want distraction. And that was our whole job there. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests Explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. My guest today is a speaker, a comedian, and an Emmy-winning Hollywood comedy writer. As a comedian, she's performed at clubs and universities across the United States. And she's performed at U.S. Army combat outposts and forward operating bases in Iraq. She's a television writer and she's written for the biggest shows in American comedy, including The Late Show with David Letterman, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and Ellen. And as a writer for the Academy Awards or the Oscars and the Screen Actors Guild Awards, she's regularly written jokes and presenter copy for the world's biggest celebrities, including Tom Hanks, who a lot of people tell me I look like. I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> Helen Mirren, who no one says I look like, and Queen Latifah. And she's the the winner of seven Emmy Awards for writing and producing television comedy and has multiple nominations for Writers Guild Awards. That is some CV. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Beth Sherman onto the Connected Leadership Podcast. Beth, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. And thanks for giving me an introduction that I don't think my mother could do better than. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's beautifully written. And I don't think your mother would claim that people say she looks like Tom Hanks either. <laughs> Not that I've met your mother, but I'm making a fair assumption here. So I was saying to you just before we started recording that very often we'll pick a theme for the podcast focused on building professional relationships in a leadership role and then build the conversation around that. I didn't feel I wanted to today for two reasons. Number one is that we have explored in a whole series of podcasts not that long ago the role of comedy and humour in building relationships, which obviously you could give us great insight to. But secondly, I just think your experience, your CV is so impressive and so interesting that there's lots of questions I want to ask you. And I think that we can take what we take from that. And I think there will be a lot of takeaways. So let's get straight into the meat of it. You don't write comedy just for yourself because you are a stand-up comedian in your own right, but you've really built your career, a lot of it, around writing comedy for other people. You know, we talked about some of those in the introduction. How does that work? I mean, how easy or hard is it to write comedy and jokes and scripts for someone in someone else's voice and how important is it to know them personally to do that and if you don't how else do you get inside their head and get their voice well I, I did stand up for about 15 years but the stand-up that I did was all after I was an established 
TV comedy writer. That's what I've been doing since I was 23. And really, I was writing for so many funny people. And I always loved stand-up comedy, but I honestly never really had the guts to do it. I mean, it took some time. And finally, some of the comics I was writing for on the side when I was writing, because I'd go to comedy clubs with people after work and and write for some of the other writers on some of these shows. And they go, well, how come you don't go up on stage? They go, it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. And then I started doing it. So I, I did for a long time write for myself. But with some comedy writers who start as comedians, who start in the opposite direction, they do find it difficult once they are so used to writing in their own voice to write in other people's voices. For me, I started writing in other people's voices. When it's a comedian or someone who is a public persona, they have a body of work. They have a massive body of work. I mean, if they're a comedian, you can literally just sit down and, and turn the TV on and watch their specials. So it's not too difficult to get a sense of how they express themselves, what they think is funny, what the rhythm of their speech is, what the tone is. And if you're an able joke writer, oftentimes the same joke, you could sort of give the same joke to different people, but you would just have to write it differently. I mean, Ellen could have a joke on the same topic as Chris Rock might. They would express it in very different ways, but the core of the joke, the spirit of the joke, the punchline, the target could be the same thing. So it's a little bit, I guess, like being a mimic uh, to get an ear for it, to get an ear for the rhythm of it. So I wouldn't say it's, well, I can only speak for myself. I don't find that part difficult. What can be difficult is doing it over and over again. A lot of my career was spent on what you call chat shows. We call them late night shows, and those are five days a week. So here, I live in London now, and, and this is Graham Norton, and he does a fantastic show, but once a week, we would do that five nights a week. And so it's just an endless process for <laughs> night after night after night, five days a week, probably 40 weeks a year doing new shows. So that becomes a real treadmill to be on. And that's a challenge in itself. You know, as a speaker, I know it's happened a few times in my career, but not that many that I've written a speech to deliver once. Normally, I can adapt existing speeches and they can become the core of what I do, which enables me to really master the nuances in the talk and know where the humor is and know where the, the real punch points are and the, the areas that really resonate with audiences. When you're writing particularly topical comedy that's going to be used once, that's got to be particularly tough, hasn't it? Well, and that's a delivery question. But yeah, I mean, writing topical comedy, yeah, you do, you go through a lot. And what you see on air is only a tiny percentage of what's been submitted, what's been written. When I was at Leno, he would probably do about 20 jokes in his monologue when he'd come out. Not, I was a bit writer there, not a monologue writer, but the monologue writers would write hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of jokes every day. I mean, they were each expected to write in the neighborhood of 70 to 100 jokes every day. Wow. There were eight of them, 10 of them, people doing this every day. And same thing for Conan and Letterman and all those sorts of things. 20 made it to air. And then the next morning, there's an empty monologue again, and everyone has to start the process over again. And the really masterful thing about the hosts who do those shows five nights a week is they can take those jokes and deliver them as if they've been doing them on stage night after night after night after night. So it is, I guess, a, a chemistry between the writers and the talent. You need to have a joke that is not only funny and topical, but is so in 
your host's voice, that your host can then take it and deliver it as if it's something that's been honed over years. Because for people that just watch comedy, if you watch someone's hour-long special on Netflix, it's going to sound as if they're making it up on the spot. They've probably spent a year, a year and a half building it bit by bit and making it sound like it's something that, I just thought of this. <laughs> it's deceptively simple. Yeah, I've been to a number of work in progress shows where well-known comedians will come and test their material. And, you know, Mickey Flanagan is a very, very popular British comedian. I've seen him three times in the last couple of years in a very small venue in Leicester Square. And each time it's the same content, but refined and refined. So he's been testing and running through that content in front of smaller audiences and not just in London, but I know he, he goes to small venues silently or quietly around the country for a year and a half before he hits the O2. But then when you're at the O2, it feels like you're the first person to hear it and it's really refined. I'm really interested in exploring more deeply that relationship with the person who is delivering the content and how you get that chemistry. I am a fine fan of some late night shows, particularly The Daily Show I've watched for a long time now. I'm a big fan of Jon Stewart. I watch his Apple TV show, John Oliver and Bill Maher as well. Jon Stewart's really interesting because on the Apple TV show, you you get a little view behind the scenes in the writer's room and they have little vignettes where it's John Stewart and the writers going through ideas for the show that they are going to put together and shows a little bit of the process. <clears throat> How genuine that is or not, I don't know. I get the sense from John Stewart that it would be pretty authentic. How involved do the stars get? Is it different star to star? When you're writing jokes for Ellen's show, is she heavily involved in the process? Is it collegiate? Same with Conan or Jay Leno. Do they get involved with that? Or do you all work together as writers and they come in at the last stage? Well, the hosts who are successful, all the hosts you just mentioned, they are heavily involved. And all the hosts you just mentioned also, they're all comedians. I mean, that's where you see the difference between someone who's a presenter, uh, maybe for a morning show or something like that, where they're very good at their job, but their job is kind of being pleasant. And so you could put almost any card in their hand and they can sell it and be charming. The people that you've mentioned are all comedians who spent decades doing stand-up comedy before they had the opportunity to have their own shows. So they are heavily involved in it. Jay, uh, yeah, everyone you mentioned is heavily involved in it. At Ellen, there one of us would write a monologue, would be assigned the monologue, and then it would be read by the producers first thing in the morning. And then we would make some changes. And then as soon as Ellen got in in the morning, she would read it through and there would be changes suggested. And then we'd rewrite it and then we'd all go to rehearsal and she would deliver it. Well, not a dress rehearsal, but just a rehearsal on from the stage. And we'd all take notes and then we'd go into a meeting with her and there would be more changes to it. And then she would read through it one more time before she went out and did it on the show. So you do need, as talented as some of these writing staffs are, I mean, you do still need to have the talent. If it's going to be successful, the talent needs to be heavily involved. And I think people think it's easy. And that's when you see shows that don't last very long because they think, well, I've hired great people. Well, yeah, but <laughs> we can only be you to so much of a degree. So how important is your relationship with that star? Does it work if they're involved in those meetings, but they take that star position, there's a hierarchy, or do you need to be able to get on with them as peers? Well, I don't 
think we are peers. It's a professional relationship, whatever you see on TV, but it's still a professional relationship. And if you think about any business organization, there might be people high up in the order who work directly with the CEO, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're buddies with the CEO. That just means that the CEO trusts them and there's still a deference and there's still a- an implicit acknowledgement that this person's, you know, you're talking to the boss. <laughs> so even in an informal situation, even in a comedy situation, people don't forget that you're speaking to the boss, but I think it's also a sign of respect. I mean, this is the person who's all of your jobs depend on this person. So if this person isn't successful, or if this person needs a little bit of TLC, that's in everybody's interest. And I'm not speaking, (laughs) I'm not talking in riddles here. I do genuinely mean that. I've worked on lots of different shows. I think that goes in, in any situation. So you don't necessarily have to be their best buddy to be able to get their voice and understand. And do you find that you are on a more natural plane, a more natural level with some than others? And why do you think that would be? Well, I think there's a shared love. I mean, I think there's a commonality. We're comedy writers because we love comedy. We're, we're people who, this is how we express ourselves. It's our, forgive me, our love language. <laughs> it's, But it's something that's important to us. It is the thing, it's, I would imagine the same thing as musicians, how, how they relate to one another. You could be very, very different people, but when musicians are on stage together making music, a lot of that falls away. So I think you don't necessarily, I think you need to not hate the person. (laughs) Life is better getting up and spending 12 hours a day at work, but I don't think you necessarily need to want to be with them all the time or need to be a huge fan. You can also be a fan of their sense of humor, much like a musician. You might not be a fan of what they do offstage or as much of a fan of what they do offstage, but you can't deny the the magic that happens when they're on stage. And what about with your peers? Does it tend to be a collegiate atmosphere in a writer's room where you're all focused on getting the best joke as sharp, as sharp <laughs> and as funny as possible without worrying who takes credit for it? Or is it much more competitive and which approach produces the probably the best results? I just can't wait to talk to some former coworkers and tell them that someone used the word <laughs> collegiate in a question about writers' rooms. <laughs> no, I think it's there's definitely it's a team and there are common goals. Every team is made up of different people and people have different styles. And we, for the most part, are not people who've come up in professional environments. We're again, forgive me using the word artist, but I mean, we're not people who came up in a management structure and went to management training and learned about all these things. And we're people who it's sort of an apprentice business and how you behave can depend a lot on where you've worked before and who your role models were and whether they were good or bad or even not good or bad, but they're all different. So I, I think people, everyone wants it to be as funny as possible, but there's a competitiveness where, yeah, it, it feels better when you're the one that gets that great joke in. But it is also comedy. Comedy doesn't happen in a vacuum. And I think the best rooms and the most successful writers and performers understand it's a team sport in the sense of you sort of knock something around a little while. I don't have the joke, but maybe something like this, because sometimes someone will throw something up into the air and knowing that it's not, it is still half-baked, but it gives someone else 
the chance to grab it and say, oh, ooh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I know where you're going with that. Let me let me put, what if we did it like this? I mean, it's just a, a brainstorming process and a creative process where everyone's throwing something into the mix. And also, everyone wants to go home at the end of the day. <laughs> and by end of the day, I mean end of the day as opposed to middle of the night. <laughs> so yeah. that's a good motivator for teamwork. It's incentive. Yeah, absolutely. So w- one thing that occurs to me is a lot of the shows that I mention that I enjoy are quite political and they're on a particular part of the political spectrum. One of the things I talk about a lot on the Connected Leadership podcast is the power of cognitive diversity. In other words, bringing in different perspectives and different points of view. Do you find that there is a lot of if it's and I don't know that the shows that you've been on I think they probably have a political bent because a lot of the late night shows use political satire as one of the major forms of comedy but do you find a homogeneity amongst the team in terms of political view that if it's a liberal show the writers room would reflect that or do you get different political perspectives in there but it still fits the hosts or the show's focus well I think it's the latter I mean I know for a fact that those shows that you mentioned, they do try to have writers who represent the political spectrum. They want it represented, but at the end of the day, you're writing for one individual's voice. And that one individual is generally someone who's very vocal about where they stand. So they want people in the room to play devil's advocate to make sure that, because comedy is about truth as well. So it only makes the host look better, no matter where they are on the political spectrum, to be able to acknowledge in a funny way the truths of the situation, even some of them go counter to what they happen to believe. And actually, in some ways, having those other voices in that writer's room provides the the mirror, the perspective to make sure you're not getting so caught in that bubble that you're missing something really obvious as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're all hypocrites in one way or another. (laughs) So having people who can, in an entertaining way, kind of call bull (laughs) on on something makes makes a better argument for the writer's room, which ultimately makes better jokes for the show. How how consistent or or uniform is the team on a show? So I know, for example, you were at Ellen for a long time. Was it pretty much the same group of writers for much of that time? Was there a lot of change between shows or between series? How did it work? Well, I was there for three years, so I don't know what a long time is in the real world. It, it was a long I, time. I guess there. it's all was, the nominations. I, at... <laughs> <laughs> I guess no, all the and, Emmy and nominations. Was... And I was at uh, Leno for for five years. Well, we happened at the Emmys. They're not all for Ellen, but because when the show would win, there were two different categories that the show would get submitted in. So it was writing and also best show. And the writers were writer-producers. So if we won for writing and we won for show, it was a two-Emmy year. So it it does sound quite a bit more impressive (laughs) than it is um, I hope impressive. you'll let me finish the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you you um, stay on. Okay. But I, the, the shelf life, I think for any of these shows is, is, well, it's just a grind. All these shows are, these shows are done five days a week. It's a grind and people have lives they need to, and people get to different points in their lives when spending that kind of time and the dedication that it takes and the hours that it takes to get comedy 
of a particular level out night after night after night, or in her case, day after day after day. It takes a lot out of you. At Leno, people stayed for a long time. He was very comfortable having people. So there were, I was the new kid, even after five years. <laughs> and I was the kid, even though I was 35 when I got there. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what made him comfortable. I think it's different for all of them, but it is, it'll take it out of you. It's, it can be a real assembly line. Something you've just mentioned there, I think, goes to a lot of what we've been talking about as well. So you say that you were the kid on Leno's show and a lot of people that have been there a long time. Do you feel that there was an element of writer's room being created in the image of the star that they're writing for to a degree? So for Jay Leno, you know, as an older man, that he would have older men writing for him more? Or is there diversity in the writing room? Well, I mean, people get old. He had his show for quite a number of years. He had his show for 20 plus years. So not to be as flip as that sounded, but they got old. I mean, they got older. They're going to come find me and hurt me. So when I was at Ellen, it was mixed. I've spent a lot of my career because the shows that we're talking about are the marquee shows that I've worked on, but I've worked on a lot of other shows that maybe one wouldn't lead with in an introduction just because they didn't last too long. But I spent a lot of my career as the only woman or one of the only women in the room. That's changed. I've also been doing this since I was 23. I've hit 50. So the world has changed what diversity means. I was diversity as a white lady. (laughs) I was diversity (laughs) for a long time. So I think all of that is changing and different people are coming in. And what happens is I probably like any other job, but you hire who you know and who you know can do a good job. And if the only people you know are people that look like you, you'll be tempted to hire them. But then as different people get opportunities, more diverse people get opportunities, well, then they hire people that they know who are probably look like them or have a more common experience to them. So it's not necessarily, in my experience, always been something where people said, absolutely not, we don't want a woman. It was just they didn't know a ton. Yes, the unconscious rather than the conscious approach. If you're in a leadership position and would like to review your own professional relationship strategy, you may be interested in booking a 15-minute call with Andy. Please visit andylapata.com forward slash discovery to find out more. Let's move away from That was the shorter the way to say it. That <laughs> was the shorter way to say I, it. <laughs> hey, hey, we've got a 45-minute podcast. I'm not looking for short answers like that. That puts too much onus on me. I love it when you chat. So let's move away from the writing. And, you you know, you talked about your performance as a stand-up and that you did that for a long time. You said it didn't come naturally to you and wasn't necessarily your first choice at the time. But you did a lot for the U.S. Army and you've performed in combat zones and forward operating bases in Iraq. That must have been an interesting experience. Tell us a little bit about that. That's one word. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I stepped on you. You're asking me to tell you about that. I went to Iraq in 2008 when it was still still pretty busy. I wouldn't recommend going to Iraq in August. That's when we went. <laughs> <laughs> it was toasty. It was 130 degrees. Yeah. It was our two-week summer hiatus when I was at Leno. And so people were going off to all sorts of places. And where are you going, Beth? The green zone. Uh, <laughs> how, how did that come about? So I was doing a lot of stand-up at the time, nights and weekends, and during our production calendar, we had a certain number of hiatus weeks, so the show would be dark. So you would kind of work Christmas and Thanksgiving and work through all of those holidays, 
but you'd get just sort of random weeks off throughout the season. The whole show would be dark. You really, it, there wasn't about you taking a personal day. It was the show's on or the show's off. And when the show was off, people would, you know, you either run around having all your doctor's appointments and catching up with things and reminding your kids who you are, or sometimes people traveled. And I would go do stand up in different places. So one of the guys that I'd worked with, one of the comics that I'd worked with, did a lot of these military tours. And it was with the Army's Office of Morale, Welfare, and Recreation. And it was their job, well, literally. I mean, they did everything from book tours of performers to make sure they had weights to lift if they wanted to do weightlifting. And this was a two-week tour and this particular tour, the guys that ran it really felt strongly that the big bases got a lot a lot of entertainment, but the small bases, the combat outposts and forward operating bases, I mean, were some of them 15, 20 guys, that was it. They, they didn't really get anything. They'd be lucky if someone sent a deck of cards. So we would get on Black Hawk helicopters. We were doing two and three a day. So get on the helicopter, go to some base in the middle of nowhere. It was three comedians, and we had a couple of representatives from the Army with us. You get on a Black Hawk helicopter. There's always two helicopters. We're always two helicopters going. And then you realize, oh, that's in case someone starts shooting at us. Great. Fly to a base, get off, do a show, and spend some time with the guys. It was mostly guys, but spend some time with the guys there and get on a helicopter, go to the next base. I mean, two, three, four a day for two weeks. And it was one of the best things I've ever done. It was terrifying and emotional, but it was incredible. I can imagine. So there's two two things that I, I need to ask you about here. One is stand-up comedy is a notoriously hard thing to do and scary thing to do anyway. And audience reactions can be very unpredictable, particularly in, say, the small club circuits uh, and so mm -hmm. forth. You've got a very different audience there. You've got <laughs> um, you, you, particularly yeah. it, it, those particular forward operating bases, people who may have just been through very traumatic experiences, may have lost friends, may, may not be in the, the classic state of mind for a comedy show. <laughs> no, not primed for yucks. Yeah. <laughs> so how, how do you handle that? How do you, how do you prepare yourself for that? And how did they, I, I think I, I know the answer to this, but I'd be interested to hear if I'm on track. How did they respond to you? And were there any occasions where, I, I'm trying to think of not using the normal terminology for a gig going wrong, because it might not be appropriate in this case, <laughs> but where it didn't go so well, were there any cases where it didn't quite land? Yeah, performing for men with guns. Yeah. Well, it, it, for the most part, it went really well. And and that's because, well, you sort of, you have to make a connection with the audience quickly. The audiences tended towards being 19-year-old guys. They're kids. They have been in the middle of, of nowhere. They've been through everything. But one of the ways... You, you can use comedy to relate to people in any situation, especially something like this is just self-awareness. And so if you, I would open with, look, because also these are 19 year old dudes with guns. I am a very tiny, big guys, you know, like army man. I'm five feet tall, middle-aged lesbian. So 
you know, I go up on stage and go, well, the big faces get the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. You get me. <laughs> you know, I mean, just acknowledging I know what I look like. I know what you're thinking. It relaxes them. And they just they want distraction. And that was our whole job there. That whole program, you are just human distraction. The shows are part of it, but really your job is to mingle and to be someone different on the base. They have been trapped with these same guys. They've been trapped with them for weeks, possibly months. So it's the rule for us is yes and. Whatever they want to do or show you, yes. That's what you want. You know, whatever they think will be fun. They want to drive you around in their new assault vehicle and it's 130 degrees and it's a bunch of big sweaty guys. Sure, I would love to. Will you pee in this wag bag? It's a disposable toilet. Oh, sure. You know, try to shoot your weapon at target practice. Yeah. Yeah. So couldn't be happier to do it. We become, we're fish out of water. They like seeing us as fish out of water and that that bought us a lot of stock. And also we were there. I mean, just the simple act of you came here for us. Yeah. Yeah. We just came here for you. That went a long way. You're the comic relief and you're the just a different face than the same sweaty faces they've been looking at for a month. <laughs> yes. And it's interesting you say that. We just had an episode with Neil Malarkey of the Comedy Store Players and we've talked, uh, and, and Neil had been on the podcast before as well. And if you don't know the Comedy Store Players, they're the main in- improvisational comedy troupe in the UK. And Yes And, of course, lies at the mm-hmm. heart of improv. So we've talked a, a lot about that and the way that really opens you up to opportunities. So it's interesting you mentioned that as well. The other question I wanted to ask you about this is when you were writing your comedy for these particular shows, were there no-go areas? And did you have the army put any restrictions on what you could and couldn't talk about? And did you have to self-censor any more than you would for a show back home? You know, they wanted us to be clean. They didn't want us to swear. They wanted us to be, which was reasonable. It's a reasonable request. There were no real consequences other than a raised eyebrow, but it was a good note, you know, try to keep it reasonably wholesome. There were some subjects that they didn't want us to talk about were generally sex and things like that. But they also told us, or at least the guy who'd done a ton of these tours told us that your job is to make them laugh, period. (laughs) Consequences be damned. Your job is to make them laugh. So, I mean, I didn't really talk about sex in my act anyway. But if, you know, you could always get a little something going, oh, wow, the colonel's going to hate this joke, you know, <laughs> whatever it actually is. I did have some political stuff in my act because I, I didn't write a ton of new stuff for them other than the circumstantial stuff, like my opening. There were things that I chose not to do just because it wasn't the right room for it. But those are decisions that I would have made from city to city anyhow. Mm. Or something that I think these 19-year-olds probably aren't going to relate to this. (laughs) So you had to think about where they were at and what they could relate to. And you can't can't talk about something that's happened back home in the last month if, if they've been rather busy on the other side of the world. Yeah, you just sort of lean on the things that are universal because even if they're they were young, they have parents, they have grandparents, they have family. I mean, you talk about the things that are just universal. And again, I did 
just because of things happened, I, I did write, I, I had a lot of things that I just used for that tour just because they happened. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if this will translate, but they all dipped. A lot of them, instead of smoking cigarettes, they would put tobacco, that sort of the little bit between the cheek and gum kind oh, yeah, of yeah. To pouch of tobacco. And they they would drink Gatorade, which I guess is sort of like Lucasade, but Gatorade, the, the sports drink, because it was a million degrees. And when their Gatorade was empty, they would spit their tobacco juice into their Gatorade bottles. So just silly things like, well, here are some things I've learned and since I've been on your base and you list a couple of real things and then rule of threes and the last one's a joke and the last one isn't don't drink the black Gatorade, <laughs> yeah. it, which to 19-year-old guys who were holding um, a bottle of tobacco juice, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Well, this makes me think, so one of the questions I get asked a lot when I'm working with, with my clients is how they build relationships with people where they can't see anything in common, that they're struggling to find commonalities. But here you are, in your own words, the five-foot middle-aged lesbian <laughs> going to forward bases in Iraq with 19-year-old huge male soldiers. And you said you're not just, you, you need to create a connection with them from the stage, but you're also spending time talking to them and with them elsewhere. One could argue you don't have a lot in, in common other than maybe the country that you come from. How did you find that? And did you find it natural to connect? And what did you talk about? Well, self-awareness goes a long way because we have that in common. I know I'm a middle-aged, short middle-aged lesbian, a petite middle-aged lesbian, and they know that. So you have that common experience. You can also talk about the external. I know it's hot. They know it's hot. I mean, we're both standing here. <laughs> we're all in the middle of a desert. So there are ways to sort of go around the back door of what you have in common. It doesn't necessarily... And and I'm sure they had a lot of very different political views than I did. Mm. But acknowledging simply the fact that we probably don't agree on everything. If you just do that, say something like that, acknowledge the elephant in the room with a raised eyebrow, sometimes that's what you have in common. By the way, talking about how hot it is or, or the weather in any way is also known as the British way of finding something in common. <laughs> I don't yes. know if you talked about the traffic a lot in downtown uh, Baghdad, <laughs> but certainly the weather plays out well. You've also, away from combat zones and, and the world of television, you've written speeches and helped inject humour into presentations delivered by corporate executives as well. Now, you talked earlier about how it's, I use the term look carefully because I'm not sure you use exactly this term, but relatively easy to write for an established comedian because they know what to do with it. How much harder is it writing for a corporate executive who may not have the presentation panache or the natural humour of a David Letterman or a Jay Leno? <laughs> well, the thing is you're not writing stand up for them. So the bar in a good way, the bar is a little bit lower. You're not writing an hour long stand up set. That would be very difficult for everybody involved and a little bit painful possibly. But you're writing, you're giving them enough humor to make a conference speech more engaging or some jokes to have in their back pocket for a panel or a podcast that they're doing. So it's a little bit of seasoning. The trick is spotting comedic opportunities that you can exploit anything that's anything 
it, it's really not about adding something in. It's about highlighting or taking advantage of something that's already in the material or that's part of the situation. I use this example in something else, but it's because it happened. But I had a client who was delivering a keynote on gastroenterology uh, for a professional association. And it was in Vegas and he had the 8 a.m. spot. (laughs) You know, it was part of something, but I guess maybe it wasn't a keynote, but he was speaking at eight o'clock. Who wants to hear about that at eight o'clock Monday morning? I mean, it's not about necessarily making gastroenterology hilarious. It's about acknowledging to everybody else who's sitting in the room with a massive hangover (laughs) that this was a really bad idea, but let's all try to get through it together somehow Uh, or you know, it's, my mom always said the best way to get over a hangover was a 40-minute lecture on gastroenterology. <laughs> I mean, it, you're not necessarily just trying to shoehorn in, here's a piece of comedy or here's an observational piece of comedy. Another good place to highlight something is if, well, is self-awareness, but also easy comedy rules like the rule of threes. A lot of times in a professional speech or someone's talking about something or they're trying to get their point across, they're listing examples. And in comedy, there's a rule of threes. The first two are real. The third one is, well, also real or true, but funny. And and you can make it absurd. So if there's a place in their speech where they're talking about, well, to get the numbers up, we've done this and this, and oh, well, there's a natural setup where you could add something funny. But yeah, I wouldn't dare try (laughs) to take your average C-level executive and write them, get them on stage at the comedy store. Yeah. The rule that I've always worked by and a lot, I know a lot of other fellow speakers do is don't try and tell jokes. Just as you say, find the funny in what you're saying and the funny observations and so on. Having mentioned that rule, I do have to say that if anyone asks for advice on if they're unsure on what to say at a gastroenterology conference, I would just say, <laughs> go with your gut. There um, you go. There you there go. You go. And, and that's why you're the comedy writer and I'm doing podcasts <laughs> about professional relationships. So Beth, you mentioned that you've moved to the UK now. You've been here for a few years. What's your focus now? Well, now I'm still doing a little bit of punch up, but I'm speaking, doing more speaking and, and showing people exactly what we've been talking about, how to use humor to make connections, how to use humor to connect with their audience, how to use humor to connect with colleagues, how leaders can use humor to make themselves just that tiny bit more accessible to the people and the teams that they're leading. I mean, just self-awareness. Every holiday season, I end up writing a lot of Christmas party speeches or, you know, sort of the boss has to get up and say a few words. And boy, the first drafts that I get, you just wouldn't realize that this is a party. (laughs) Look, have some awareness. What do people think when you go up to speak? What do you, what are the highs that have happened? What are the lows? So yeah, what you talk about is so important. I think we do take ourselves too seriously in the workplace. I see too many people who, who try and have these different personas. And you see it a lot on social media where they're frightened to let their personality come through in what they share. They don't want to let people in. And I keep saying that 
if you wear a mask the whole time, it's harder for people to connect with you. If you remove the mask, be human, and humour is a huge part of that, then people find it much easier to engage with you and build that relationship, which is key. Well, and audiences, and audiences of any sort, it can be your team and the people that you work with, they can smell it. If you're not being authentic, yeah. they know, even if they don't, even if they can't articulate it, they know that something is off. It's very intuitive. So if you're authentic and you don't have to be self-deprecating, there, there's a big difference between being self-aware and being self-deprecating, but it, it just goes such a long way and it's such an efficient way to at the very least get someone's attention. If you start with humor in a speech, just to acknowledge what's going on or acknowledge every the common experience that people are having, at least people think, oh, maybe this speech won't suck. <laughs> Advise you five more minutes of them listening, but I'm always I'm always surprised at how frightened people are of using humor in a professional situation. And and someone said, yeah, but it's very risky. And said, well, yes, I'm not suggesting anyone do anything that feels risky, but there are ways to mitigate that risk. You want it to be appropriate to the situation. You want it to be kind. You want it to be self aware. You want it to. You don't. There are whole areas that you would stay away from if you're using it in a professional situation. But I don't think it's a huge risk. And taking that risk out or mitigating some of that risk doesn't also doesn't necessarily have to be taking the joy out of it either. Because people go, oh, well, it has to be safe. And safe isn't funny. Well, safe can be funny. It's how you do it and how you approach it. Yeah, I was going to say when you were talking about when you were speaking in Iraq or doing sets in Iraq that you couldn't swear and, you know, the various no's, things that you couldn't talk about. There are a lot of fans of comedy who think that comedy has to be risky or dirty or sweary in order to be funny. It can be, but also it can be very unfunny because the focus is all on being controversial and not on being humorous. And there are a lot of very good comedians who do it very safely. It doesn't have to be a risk at all. Yeah. And I think if you listen to someone, I think the way it can be judged sometimes is to just, if you re, if you take all the swear words out, is it still funny? Yeah. Because there's some people like Chris Rock who's uses a ton of profanity, but if you just literally remove the profane words, if you've literally, re it's still hilarious. He's doing it for effect. He's doing it because he's it. he's got a persona. But it's absolutely hilarious still. It doesn't remove it. And then that's also when you can see if your joke being funny depends on that kind of language or that, uh, then, well, maybe it, you need to keep writing. That's a personal <laughs> preference of mine. <laughs> I, mean, I would tend to agree. I think it can be funny, but it goes to this point about humor being risky. Humor doesn't have to be risky at all. It's human. It's just applying some common sense and not getting involved in the banter you would get, get involved with on your friends at the weekend in the office. It's not necessarily appropriate. Uh, yeah. And sometimes you don't, ha it doesn't have to be spelled out. I mean, s sometimes it can just sort of be, uh, pardon me? I mean, if someone says something suggestive, you don't have to say something suggestive back or inadvertently says something suggestive in a professional situation. It, just pausing or a raised eyebrow or a look, you don't have to articulate every part of that thought. People will know. Or if someone is, you know, I, I ghostwrite a lot of wedding speeches and people always want to talk about the time the groom barfed all over the place. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
like, you know, it's a dinner event, right? But there are ways to say it without being explicit yeah. or ways to leave things unsaid in a way that can usually be more fun. If you're trying to think of a funny euphemism or you kind of smile or nod or gesture, you can get, sometimes it's funnier because you're putting a little more performance into it and you're giving the audience more credit. You're letting them do that math or the maths. You're letting them, <laughs> you're letting them do that and they appreciate that because now it's, it's even more of a dialogue between you two. You're not just saying something at them absolutely well on that point we're going to have to leave everything else unsaid but i think there's <laughs> there's a lot there already and beth i i knew it would be a, a really enjoyable conversation and it has been uh, self-awareness seems to have been a big theme of it and the ability to to connect with people and and create humor through some self-awareness and to point out those differences not necessarily as you say self-deprecating it can be but it doesn't have to be but just connecting on that level and there was a lot and you've had a really interesting journey so far and i hope it continues to be thank you for including the connected leadership podcast as part of that journey oh it's my absolute pleasure thank you for having me and if you want to see people that don't have self-awareness watch any politician <laughs> Sadly, I do. Yes, <laughs> to most agree. Yeah, absolutely. So, thank you so much to Beth for joining me. I said at the beginning that we wouldn't go with a theme. I think there were clear themes within that, and as I knew it would be, there was a lot that I hope that you could take away in terms of the relationships you build during your career as you you take and you excel in a leadership position i was about to list the various things i took and then i remember beth was saying at the end sometimes you leave it to your audience to join the dots effectively so i'll let you take what you, you did from this i took a lot i hope you did as well and i hope you took enough to join us again next week for another episode of the connected leadership podcast thank you for listening to the connected leadership podcast if you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.